All right, I want to welcome on my next guest. We got a very special guest. We've got three-time Super Bowl champion, Dallas Cowboys legend, as well as former Air Force fighter pilot, Mr. Chad Headings. Chad, is everything going for you? Uh, life is good, my friend. Life is good. All right, so my first question is, what the hell's going on with your Cowboys? <laughs> if I knew that, I'd be a very wealthy man. <laughs> no, it's this whole year, this COVID stuff is, has been ridiculous. Yeah. And I think just sports in general, it's when players can't, you know, in the off season work out together, when they've been isolated, they can't interact with the new coach, you know, with their coach, with a new coaching staff, you know, and then we start to lose, man, the wheels just fall off the bus and it's tough to stay motivated and try to win games. Has DeMarcus Lawrence called you and said like, Hey, what do I do? <laughs> no, no, but it, and I tell you, it's, it's, it's tough to watch. Well, the division as a whole, like they're in it, which is crazy. So it's, yeah. it's, it's wild. So I want to ask you a little about your early, I saw, I saw some former interview. Is it true you grew up on, on a farm with 1200 cows? Yeah, no, I grew up on a farm. I'm a farm boy from Iowa. Wow. Farm, you know, the, the crops that we raised were to support a feedlot operation. So we'd have about a thousand head of cattle on, you know, on our property at all, any given time. So I grew up eating red meat twice a day, every day of <laughs> my life. Do you use them for pass wrestling drills at all or no? <laughs> cow tipping was a big great sport you know that it, it helped me actually my wrestling that and wrestling hogs right like a swim move kind of getting around them that's right yeah so what when did how did you decide upon going to air force um for me i wanted to have an experience that i wouldn't have going to a traditional school i had several goals i wanted to get a phenomenal education i wanted to have an experience that's not, again, not at your traditional school. And I wanted to play division one college football. Those were my goals and playing at the air force Academy was, uh, it certainly filled all those yeah. uh, aspirations for me. And I'm glad it worked out the way it did because it gave me an opportunity to experience so many different things in life, get a phenomenal education, improve my leadership abilities and you know, play division one ball. Was, was that, was college and just having an interesting education, um, that was that your goal at the time or was the NFL at all on your radar? NFL was never on my radar. Again, I grew up in a small rural community in yeah. Iowa that, you know, all conference, but again, not highly recruited coming out of high school. And, um, you know, when you choosing a service academy is not typically when you go that route, you're not thinking about the NFL. And I David, think David had, Robinson did it for the Spurs. So I think it's yeah, just you and but, him. So Well, but I can tell you that he went in not with the intention of going to the NBA because he yeah. grew six inches while yeah. he was there at the Naval Academy. <laughs> yeah. So was there a, was there a height requirement? Cause I, I once heard that there was a height requirement and he kind of got by cause he grew once he got there. Well, he did. And he kind of probably cut a deal that, Hey, you stay here and, <laughs> let you play on the Olympic team on the service team and yeah. you can choose your assignments and yeah. eventually go play sooner than later. Did, did you know you wanted to be a pilot? No. I mean, it wasn't something that was a burning aspiration of mine growing up, but it's one of those things that having the experiences that I did at the yeah. Academy from flying in glider aircraft to flying in a, a Cessna 172s to get that experience, I, I caught the bug. And with all the different classes that I took there from the aeronautical engineering uh, classes, learning about flight, going to different active duty Air Force bases, seeing an F-16, F-15, A-10s take off and fly and do missions. Man, you, if you don't have the bug, you would get the bug once you experience that. 
How, how many hours of training do you think you had before you actually got in an actual jet? You know, which was crazy. Um, we had, uh, it was about two weeks of academics to learn the systems of the aircraft. And then, I mean, your first ride here, the go, you fly with an instructor pilot, yeah. but here, here you go. Crazy thing though, after I finished pilot training, when I received the assignment to fly the A-10, um, you know, you've had about a year of pilot training at that point in time of, of jet time. You have a few hundred hours in the jet, but your first flight in the A-10 is solo. I mean, it's, you learn the systems and it's the mechanics of flight are all the same, but first flight was solo, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah. No, because I didn't do so well with the parallel parking or the driver's test. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to cross that <laughs> off my list. <laughs> That's wild. And then so when you, and then so once you got in it, did you just kind of just get that rush that you're like, all right, this is, this feels right. I'm, I'm going to keep doing oh, it, this. It, for me, flying the A-10 was like a D lineman's dream because the missions that we would fly, I was assigned to an active duty base in, in England and we'd forward deploy to Germany and Central Europe. And the missions that I would fly, I'd fly at, you know, anywhere from, couple hundred feet to 500 feet above the ground in support of closer support of, of our armed forces, the infantry and taking out, you know, the enemy tanks yeah. and the missions that we would fly. A lot of it was being flexible and it would change so much. The dynamics of the mission would change while you're in the air and you communication, sometimes just hand signals with your, with your wingman as to how to go about and execute a mission. It was, it was awesome. And it was, there was so much preparation yeah. and the experience that I had with doing that, that it has helped me when I got and ultimately when I got to the Cowboys, as well as in business, yeah. it's just how to think outside the box. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, I'm so very fortunate that I had that experience in life. What kind of leg room do they have in those jets? Cause I know you're a tall guy. Leg room. No, I had received waivers for my height and my weight to be able to fly. I was too tall and too heavy. So I was, I was crammed in there. But Zach, when you're at 20, three, 24, 25 year old kid. Yeah. You don't think about the what ifs. It's all about the rush and the experience. And I was definitely in that camp. Yeah. So I have a question. Were some of like the conditions you were flying in is like now like driving in the worst fog, worst hate, like everything is nothing compared to being up, up in the air. Like in terms of like bad weather conditions. Now you're like, oh, oh bad weather conditions. Yeah. When flying missions out of England, yeah. where it's complete overcast clouds from end of, you know, first part of October through April, that you're flying in the weather all the time. I mean, England is probably one of the most depressing places to be during that time of year because you never see the sun. Well, they're still, they're still in 1883. So that's the thing. <laughs> But uh, but no, we had to learn, and particularly when you fly in fingertip formation, where you have just three feet of wingtip clearance between jets, where you're flying as one jet, wow. you're going through that that weather, and many times all you can see is a flashing light on his wingtip, top and bottom of his fuselage, as well as in front of his nose cone. You know, that's all you can see. I mean, you may be flying upside down, as far as you know, you have no horizontal or horizon references. You don't know. So it's that's there's a lot of trust with your flight lead of whether he's doing the job correctly. I saw one one story you were telling about at one time. I don't think you had enough fuel and you had to land somewhere. And nobody spoke English. Well, I was on my initial. Uh, I was we were ferrying jets out of England to Turkey when we were first deployed in the Gulf War um, over the Mediterranean. I end up losing one of my engines. The A10 is a two engine aircraft. My number two, my right engine, end up losing an oil seal. So I was spewing oil out 
And in that case, when you have that type of emergency procedure, you shut the engine down. So I had to land single engine at a naval base in Suda Bay, Crete, on the island of Crete, and talking to Greek air controllers. It was just, it was kind of stressful and task saturating of just to communicate with somebody that speaks English as a second language, yeah. trying to tell them what situation that you're dealing with, and hey, you need to get down and land yeah. soon because the A-10 is an underpowered aircraft. It, 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 it doesn't. It, it flies okay on two engines. But on one engine, you need to manage your your flight speed and your altitude and your airspeed um, very efficiently. You said that was your your first your first flight. No, my first. Well, oh, okay. I was going to say because like that's why that would be wild. Uh, Yeah, no, that would have been that's crazy. (laughs) But no, that we were right over the 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 Mediterranean Sea where you all you can see is a couple islands off in the distance and not much else aside from water, water everywhere. If you figure like you get to your land there and you're like, nobody speaks, no one speaks English. And you're like, all right, I live here now. Like this is, <laughs> that's wild. And then, so you um, continue to have a storied career in the air force while you're playing. So you were playing football. How, how did you have enough time to focus on everything you needed to? Cause I'm sure your course load was much more than the average students. Yeah. I mean, when I was at the air force Academy, I was, you know, it's the college experience that I would average probably 20 credit hours a semester. Okay plus the uh, military training we did, plus, you know, practice and playing games. So it was, you learn to manage your time yeah. uh, very well. And if you didn't, it was a sink or swim mentality. If, if you didn't learn that skill set, you weren't going to last long. I saw, is it true you were, you were drafted by Tom Landry, but it was before your service time? Yeah, Tom Landry, uh, Gilbrandt, uh, Tech Schramm, that era yeah. drafted me in the 11th round in 1988. So it's a long time ago when they had 11 rounds in the draft. Yeah. But my time when I was able to ultimately get to the Cowboys, Jerry Jones had bought the team. Jimmy Johnson was the coach. And they didn't know who the heck I was when I was finally eligible to come <laughs> and play. So did they, so what is, how does the contract roll over that? Was it just kind of like, all right, your, con- your rookie contract starts now or how did that work? You know, the, uh, I'm sure they're still the same, but there was a provision in the all NFL contracts that in time of national crisis or emergency where people go to war, this dates back to the Korean conflict, World yeah. War II, the Vietnam era, that if, you know, a guy was drafted and went off to war, that his contractual rights were retained by the team that drafted him or held his contract. So that's, I kind of came in under that provision. So when you first, so when you get to the Cowboys, when was the last time you played organized football? Four years prior, a little over four years prior to that. <laughs> so did they, what, did you expect the workout to go as well as it did? Or what what, did, what were you hearing? What did you think they were? Well, two different things. Well, we're talking um, how the story, how the actual went was our armed forces were going through reduction in force, meaning that they were waiving commitment time from the guys because we needed to downsize after the first Gulf War. This okay. was in early 92. Our... Um, they waived my pilot training commitment. See, the standard commitment graduating from a service academy is five years. Okay. My commitment was eight years because I went through pilot training. They spend a little more money on you, yeah. try to train you, so yeah. they want you for a longer period of yeah. time. So I had an eight-year commitment, and at this point in time, I had been in the Air Force for four years. But the Air Force went, and they, they waived um, the pilot training commitment, so I ended up still owing them one year in for four, now a minimum of a five-year commitment, okay. but not enough individuals were getting out. So they then waived 24 months or two years off the service academy commitment, which then allowed me 
to go pursue, you know, something else. And not just for me, but a lot of my peers went to go fly oh, for cool. the airlines at that point in time. Oh, cool. So when the guy who, uh, when they drafted me, the agent who represented me, I contacted and said, Hey, I'm eligible to get out. Are the Cowboys still interested in me? You know, because they transitioned in ownership. He calls me back the next day. Long story short, there was a ticket waiting for me at London Heathrow airport. I flew to Dallas, did a workout for the Cowboys, obviously impressed them enough that they took a flyer on me, wanted me out. Uh, Jimmy Johnson asked, Hey, we like what we see. When can you join us? I have no idea. I salute smartly and said, I'll let you know, sir. Flew back to England, submitted my paperwork. Within three weeks, I was out processed out of the Air Force, wow. flying back to the States to start my first training camp. Did they add you to the 53 or however many players they had at a time or the practice squad? No, I was actually, then I went through the training camp with okay. them and I made the 53 man squad wow. at that point in time. And so, you know, my thing, Zach, I flew my last mission in Northern Iraq in the early part of 92 and I played in the Super Bowl the same year. That's how fast life happened for me. Unbelievable. Have you ever flown Jerry Jones plane? You ever said, Hey, like, I, I, I can help yeah, you. Back, I've flown in it. I've never okay. flown it. Well, I, I take that back. I have, I got really? this plane. I knew the pilots and uh, they let me <laughs> come up and fly a little bit when I was on it. Does Jerry know you were doing that or not? I'm sure we were doing barrel rolls and loops <laughs> and airline rolls and everything else. <laughs> Unbelievable. So you, you get to the Cowboys. What's your experience? What's your like? Uh, what's it like? Because you're obviously older than all the other rookies on the team. You've been through the military. What, what was it? An easy adjustment period? What was that like? Well, there's always an adjustment period. There's certain stress levels. You know that on those, the hierarchy of life stress. You know the top two. Like if there's a death in the family, change of occupation. Yeah a move, you know, I had two of like the top three stress factors working for me. So having not played the game in, you know, four years, adjusting to a climate where Europe it's in the summertime, a high of 78, moving to Texas where it's 95 degrees and 70% humidity, you know, putting on the pads. It was, it was a big adjustment for me to be able to do that. But, um, you know, perseverance and, and commitment ruled the day. Yeah. What was your first memory of meeting Michael Irvin? First memory of meeting Michael that I can mention? Yeah, yeah. See, Michael and I were in the first draft class, you know, and okay. I, I would tease, you know, to your other question too, I would tease my teammates that, hey, guys, do whatever you want, say whatever you want to me. I've had a real job before I came here. You know, I was a fighter pilot. I flew yeah. combat, quote-unquote, combat missions, and I've flown jets. So well, there's not much from a mental stress standpoint you're going to throw at me that's going to – move the needle, but you know, there it is. It's a different form of stress, physical stress, mental stress, but Michael, Michael's a character. I mean, I think the, with the guys like he, Mark Tuone, Frank Cornish, uh, Nate Newton, Charles Haley. If you guys remember all those names, oh, yeah. these guys, they made that there was more levity in the locker room. I've never laughed so hard in my life. That's Just awesome. some of the pranks that they would pull on each other. You can imagine when you're 25 years old, you're a millionaire, you have access to all this cash, but you're still a 15 year old kid yeah. at heart. Yeah. So it is hilarious <laughs> what some of the pranks that they pull on one another. I have a question. I ask this, everybody who plays in the NFC East. What's the most annoying opposing NFC East fan base? Oh yeah. You, you already know it before I'm even going <laughs> to answer that question. Philadelphia Eagles. They ever, what's the wildest thing somebody said to you? I've, the one, I've, I've heard one crazy thing. Dexter Manley told me somebody threw eggs at him, which was into hard-boiled eggs, which I'm like, I don't know how you're getting that into uh, 
RFK. But did you ever have any interesting experience with the Eagles fans? Yeah, totally. I mean, my first game there, it was uh, they had just had an ice storm, and they said basically they security briefed us when you're walking in and out of the locker room, make sure you're wearing your helmet because you're going to probably get pelted with ice balls. And a lot of times, you know, they put batteries in it and they stuff all this stuff. And you can imagine with Jimmy Johnson back in the day when he had that quaff, his hair was perfect. He had to put a helmet on to come in and out of the locker room because they were going to pelt him too. Brutal fans, brutal fans. Unreal. So, so that first, so that first year, correct me if I'm wrong. That was you. You, so you went right to the Super Bowl. What was what, what was that like? Just like, all right, this is obviously not going to happen every year, but like, this is this is this is like a culture shock. Um, you know, at that point in time, when you're in the mix, you're drinking by the fire hose and you're just having all these experiences and three of my first four years, we went to the Super Bowl. So I thought, man, this is how it's supposed to be. But it, you know, hindsight, looking back, I look at those teams and I've never been around a group of more selfless individuals where everybody's attitude was for the team, you know, that their individual, uh, accomplishments or wants and desires we're subservient to that of the team. You know, if we didn't make it to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, it wasn't a successful year. And just being around that environment with those individuals that are now Hall of Famers, yeah. and hopefully we can get a few more in. Yeah, it was a very unique experience and very surreal experience that I look back and I appreciate more now than what I did then because you know, when you're in the mix of it, this is this is life, and you're yeah. you're trying to repeat year after year after year after year, and it's it's a challenge. I saw, um, is it true that first Super Bowl, you either bear, did not play much or you didn't get into the game? Well, my first, I was inactive for the first seven games, um, seven or eight games of my career, meaning inactive. I was in civilian clothes standing on the sidelines. And I went up to Coach Johnson after that period of time and I said, Coach, I'll do whatever it takes to get on the field. I'll play special teams. As a defensive lineman who's 6'6", you know, it's probably 275, 280 at the time. He said, okay, so I was running down kickoffs, wow. covering punts, you know, on the field goal protection team, the PAT team. I was doing whatever it takes. And that's how I got, eventually got on the film, on yeah. the field. And then when you're there and, you know, being who we are at that yeah. point in time, we were so deep in the D line that um, when we'd get up, I'd just start to get playing time. So then I got to the point where I can impress the coaches with my defensive lineman play, yeah. which eventually was able to work into a starting position then, yeah. but you know, that's why I tell a lot of kids, you know, do whatever it takes yep. to get on the field, volunteer, play, whatever, show that you're a good teammate and you want to contribute to the success of the team, yeah. put your ego on the sidelines and just work hard and get after it. Do you think having that early success, knowing that um, since you didn't get that much time, made you want to be like, all right, once I get there, I want to be right back here. In what way? I mean, in terms of like, all right, I see what these guys are doing in the Super Bowl. They're playing. I'd like to. I want to be out on this field for a Super Bowl. Like, I I want to be right back here in this in this lineup. Yeah, I mean, year yeah. after year after year, yeah. that's yeah. that's definitely a motivator. Yeah. And to have that 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 experience. So I went from that from playing kickoffs, running down kickoffs in that first Buffalo game, and you can imagine. Yeah. Not that I'm complaining by any stretch of the means, but we scored a lot of points. So you're having to basically do a 70, 80 yard sprint. And I had to do like 14 of those suckers plus running down punts and kickoffs too. I mean, running down punts that, I mean, I'm not a track athlete for a big guy that was taxed, but fortunately 
you know, my third Super Bowl, I'm in there, you know, playing and I ended up getting a couple sacks in the That's game. Awesome. So I, my experience in the Super Bowls ran the gamut. Do you, do you feel bad at all for Bills fans for losing four straight? For say that again? Do you have any ounce of like, I kind of feel bad for you guys, for Bills fans for losing four straight, knowing you guys gave them two of them? You know, I grew up as a Minnesota Vikings fan where they lost four, four games too back in the seventies and eighties. So it's, you know, it is what it is. They, um, you know, to be able to get to that position, you know, you're, you're number two. I mean, nobody remembers the number two, but you know, it's just, that's the way the game, you know, goes many times. Interesting. Did your teammates have any, have any interesting nicknames for you since you're in the air force? I had, you know, Flyboy. Hank Bill Bates called me Flyboy. Um, some of the old linemen, um, because some of the pass rush moves I used, they called me Cold Buckets because it was like I was carrying, you know, like the old school Cold Buckets. You know, it's just um, – so I had a lot lot of funny ones. Who, who was the most difficult um, offensive lineman for you to get through? Oh, Larry Allen, no questions. I mean, guys in the Hall of Fame, yeah. when you're that big – he probably his playing weight, you know, he probably listed at 315, but he was every bit of three and a quarter, 330. Move, he had feet like a cat, never was out of position, never off balance, and he could bench press 750, uh, let alone whatever he could squat. I mean, the guy was a beast, an animal. And, um, yeah, but that's what hones my skills is the guys that go up, you're practicing against them all the time. Yeah. So you're again, sink or swim mentality. You're going to have to improve your skill set to be able to compete. So we pushed each other. And then who was who the toughest quarterback for you to bring to the ground? Um, well, we, a lot of the guys back then thinking of, uh, you know, Randall Cunningham's of the world to uh, Steve Young's of the world to, you know, early, uh, Warren Moons of the world, the mobile quarterbacks, a lot that they have today, like your Kyler Murray's, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, your, your Dax too, before he gets yeah. hurt. Those were the guys that were the most challenging because you had to exhibit a lot of pass rush discipline, stay in your, stay in your lane that you couldn't improvise a lot because if you would, you'd end up getting beat. Yeah. I mean, cause they, they capitalize it. They tuck the ball and they'd run. Those were the guys who were probably the most challenging because if you had a straight drop back passer like yeah. a Dan Marino or a John Elway, you know, even like a Troy, he's going to stay in the pocket and they're not that necessary mobile that if you get back there, you're going to either be able to get a ball or a hand on the ball to knock it down or, you know, tackle them. Yeah. And then you, and you played with one of the greatest passers of all time in Charles Haley. What kind of work ethic did he have to get to where he was? Charles, Charles is awesome. I learned so much from him. He was one of the hardest working guys and he was the true leader of our D line. He, his, his knowledge base, not just on pass rushing skill set, but his knowledge of offenses, how he could evaluate film and, and come up with a game plan, how he would come up with a game plan, you know, to go against a specific offensive lineman to be able to defeat whatever that technique, that offensive lineman would utilize. I learned a lot from Charles and he had a tremendous work ethic and we, you know, he, he worked so hard that he's, you know, now he's got two new knees that he may have two hips. His back is completely fused from his cervical vertebrae all is down to his lower lumbar. His body took a beating, but he was relentless, relentless. And, you know, we are great friends today and I respect the heck out of him. And he's, you know, he's a hall of famer. Yeah. I have a, I have a question early in your Cowboys days. Did you, did you connect with Stallback to see kind of what he did since he both, he also had service time? 
you know, Roger's been a great mentor and a great friend over the years and having shared the academy experience that we had, you know, serving, yeah. you know, in a combat zone and then coming to ultimately play for America's team. Yeah. You know, he's, you know, he is, he's the man. Roger is the man. And then going on to transition from there to have a successful career in real oh, yeah. estate, you know, I followed him in those steps too, that I've, you know, I'm a fiduciary principal in a commercial oh, cool. real estate company based here in Dallas. So yeah. I'm kind of following Roger's footsteps. That's awesome. That's so cool. Uh, that's and I have a couple uh, user submitted questions I got from some people that are fans of you. One of them has kind of stuck out to me. They said, we all know the star players of that dynasty, like the big three, Moose, Jay, Woodson, Haley. Who do you think was the most underrated player that contributed more than people realized to help win those Super Bowls? To win the Super Bowls? Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned, aside from like your, the triplets of Troy and Emmett, yeah. and Michael and, and Charles Haley, you know, those guys that um, consistently, you know, like I'll talk about, it's the offensive line, like yeah. the John Giesecks of the world, the uh, big nasty, the uh, Eric Williams, you know, that offensive line, Nate Newton, um, Mark Stepnoski, you know, Larry Allen, of course, those guys were a beast. I mean, when you can dominate defenses where you could run at will and then pass, you know, open up the run the ball to open up the passing game. You know, I heard, remember Troy saying there are many times that you know we would walk out on the field knowing right away we were going to win the game. Wow. I mean, with them that they knew they would get on the field and it's it totally sets the tone for every game. When, you know, if you're receiving the ball first or when the first possession that your offense has, when you can drive the field and score a touchdown, yeah. not just a field goal, but a touchdown pretty much predominantly every series or every game. I haven't seen Washington do it in two years. So Yeah, well, but that's, that sets precedent. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, that's press, that sets tone. And when you're that far up, the defense loves it because the team has to play catch up. They're going to be throwing the, throwing the ball more so you can pin your ears back and rush the quarterback. And that, that's where we get a quote unquote, you know, some of the yeah. press clippings from that way. Wow. After the third one, we were like, all right, I'm good. Or you, you were like, we could do it again after the third Super Bowl. We, um, well, we were disappointed we didn't do four in a row because I really feel that we should have, when we lost to San Francisco in 93 in the NFC Championship game, where we basically spotted them 21 points in the first seven minutes of the game. Wow. We almost came back to win. You know, we t we should have went four in a row, and I think we could have gone more. But you know, it's again hindsight. Looking back on those experiences, it's tough to keep everybody on the same page, to have the same cohesive team vision. That you know, when success breeds apathy, yeah. and sometimes breeds you know more of an internal individual focus. Yeah, and that's what ultimately led to that kind of the downfall of those dynasties. And you know, it's unfortunate, but but we had a lot of fun yeah. when it lasted. So, so since Troy Aikman calls, I feel like it's every Cowboys game because it's, you guys are always on in the primetime slot. Do you think he has to kind of filter himself out to say what he really wants to say? Or do you think he's brutally honest? I think he's really honest. I think he's, um, he's not, Troy's a true professional. He's not a homer. <laughs> like Michael Irvin, you know, Michael will tell you it's the Cowboys. That's the way, but, but Troy is very professional. He's going to call it the way he sees it. And that's what I respect about it. Interesting. Do you think Dak's the guy going forward? The big question mark for him is how, from a rehab standpoint, yeah. coming yeah. back after that horrific injury, and you know that's what it does to your psyche. And you know he's shown himself to be a very strong mental individual to 
put a lot of the ancillary off the field antics, you know, aside and concentrate on what's going on. But you know, again, it's his his to lose. Yeah. And you know, obvious. The last few weeks, when your starting quarterback is out, where you can see why. Well, Danucci, Danucci's just setting the world on fire. I don't know why they took him out. He, he was great for Washington. <laughs> you know, it's we shall see. We shall see. Interesting. And then so I've got I got uh, one last question for you. So, um, well, how cool was it to get that letter that you got inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame? To get oh that to me. Um, I got the letter, but I got the phone call from Steve Hatchell, the director, you know, prior to that saying that I was selected. You know, I think at that time, I didn't even know I was on the ballot. Wow. How much I was monitoring a lot of that. But for me, it's a, it's not just an acknowledgement for myself, but it's for those teams that I was very fortunate to be a part of at the Air Force Academy, where we, you know, went from going to three different bowl games. And back then they only had six or seven bowl games all year. So to be able to attend a bowl game with us, especially now there's 30 different bowl games, whatever. Too many. But But um, for that, and then, you know, the teams that we had for the Service Academy, we finished 12 and one. We beat the University of Texas. We bought a bowl in 1985 or 86 season. Um, You know, that, that was a big accomplishment. We beat Notre Dame four years in a row. You know, these are things for those teams back then were pretty special. And, you know, to be honored as an individual, I consider that, Hey, it's, it's a, except that for my teammates. That's awesome. And I, one last question, I just remembered it. So I saw you've written a couple books. Can you talk about like kind of what led you to do that? One of the things that's every time I thought about writing a book or was approached about writing a book, I, I asked myself, do I have a, a valid story to tell and to share? The first book I wrote was it takes commitment. And I think that my story that I thought was valid that I needed to share, particularly the book was geared towards younger people about the concept of commitment from my faith-based perspective, because of my experience running up on a farm and going to the academy, following through with my commitment and not trying to circumvent the commitment to get directly into the NFL, but then being able to play in the NFL, winning Super Bowls. It's just, it's kind of a cool story, but it was all about the aspect of in order to achieve anything in life, you have to be committed to your identity, your purpose, and your mission. Second book I wrote was a book called Rules of Engagement, where I, again, the valid story I wanted to share with men is kind of a life plan from a faith-based perspective on certain rules of engagement that we need to follow if you want to, quote, unquote, live a life of excellence. Um, and then my last book that I wrote was a book called Forces of Character, where I'm a big character integrity guy. And that's what I talk a lot on, on leadership is and core values on in order to be a leader, you have to be an individual character. So I had conversations with 10 people that impacted my life oh, cool. that I thought exuded character. You know, names some of you have recognized Roger Staubach, Troy awesome. Aiden, Jason Garrett, Greg Popovich, coach for the Spurs, wow. Supreme Court yeah. Justice, Clarence Thomas, and then some other names whose stories were, I think, phenomenal. I interviewed a survivor of Auschwitz, an astronaut, oh, wow. a human rights attorney from former communist Romania the national CEO, a CEO for the National Center on Fathering and a homelessness expert out of Dallas. Male, female, black, white, these people come from a variety of different backgrounds, but the one thing that they had, they shared together was that they were people of integrity. And I just, I document their story, their journey on um, why they are the way they are and how they've been able to impact other people. That's awesome. Has Disney reached out to you to do a biopic about you? Because I feel like it's a long time coming. <laughs> 
No, my life's boring, man. That's all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Come on. No, that's I'll, that's. I'll link all that to when I post it. But that that's all the questions I really have for you. I do really do appreciate. Oh, one more, one more last one. How was your Veterans Day? Do you do anything fun? I was actually uh, was speaking at a gathering in Orlando to the Republican Attorney General's Association. Oh, so it was a it was a very I was honored to be able to do oh, it cool. and to be able to speak to them. That's how I spent my Veterans Day. That's awesome. Serving. That's awesome. So I know you guys have so many like giveaways. I'm like, it's, it's awesome. Like it's best day. But yeah, but I do appreciate taking time. I'll link all your stuff. How, how can people find you on social media? Keep up with you. You just go to uh, my I have a website, chadhennings.com. Cool. So last and question. And it's all on um, Facebook, inter- Instagram, and Twitter and all that. All right, too. Cool. Yeah, my last question comes out five questions. But dude, yeah, but I do appreciate you taking time. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I'm hoping we get a real NFC East next year because this year, like... You know, it's- it hasn't been since the 90s, my friend. It hasn't I, been since the 90s. If the, if the Giants are winning the division, everybody else is doing something. That we got plenty of time